All right, let's turn once again back to Revelation chapter 1, and let me draw your attention to verse number 18. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and have the keys of hell and of death. I want to deal with, of course, the text tonight dealing in verses 12 through 20, but also with the subject of the Christ who lives. The Christ who lives. Now we understand that the Apostle John had witnessed with his own eyes the Lord Jesus Christ. He was uh, privy to the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ. So John had been able to see him with earthly, natural eyes. It is one thing that you and I have not seen. Uh, You and I have not seen the Lord Jesus Christ with natural, earthly eyes. What we see and how we see and whom we see is through spiritual eyes. They are through the eyes of faith. But John, when he saw him with earthly eyes, also was seeing more than just a man. He was seeing more than just a prophet. He was seeing the Messiah. He was seeing he who had been promised. Imagine what John's eyes saw. All the works and the miracles and the going from town to town, from place to place. He saw the healings. He saw the Lord teaching. Uh, He saw the Lord rebuke those who would attempt to undermine him, much like we're looking in the book of Matthew on Sunday mornings, how he would deal with the Pharisees. John saw all of these things. But he also saw Jesus' perfect life of obedience. And by the way, that's a very important aspect of the ministry of Christ, is that not only did he go to the cross and bleed and die, but he lived a perfect life of obedience, fulfilling the demands of the law. John saw the Lord in the agony in the garden. He saw Jesus in his death. John, no doubt, saw many miraculous things. He saw the transfiguration. Think about that for a moment. John's eyes, what they saw. He saw the ascension of the living Christ. He saw the resurrected Christ ascend up to heaven. He was just like you and I, taught by the Spirit of God as well. Now we see John in the Isle of Patmos. And suddenly now he is reintroduced to a vision, a glorious appearance of Christ that as we read through those passages, reads much differently than what he would have seen in his earthly eyes. As a matter of fact, we hear when we read a magnificent description of what the Lord's appearance looked like. And we see that the response of John was that he fell at his feet as dead. Uh, Demonstrating to us that he knew and the response was the presence of deity, the presence of God. He fell flat on his face in a spirit of worship. John, of course, was given a vision that many others never saw. He saw a glorious appearance of the Christ who lives while he was banished on the Isle of Patmos. Now, the Bible says that the Apostle John wrote about what he heard. It's interesting, I made mention of this last week, that verse 12 says that he turned to see the voice. It's almost a strange use of words. He turned to see the voice. Of course, we don't typically see a voice, we hear a voice, but we'll see why uh, I think that phrase is there. But this was an alarm, if you will. This was the sound of a trumpet we saw in previous weeks, how this announcement, this presence of God was there. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, standing before John. And he gives John a commandment. He's told him, I want you to write the things in which I tell you to say. Write them down. We saw the instructions last week that wherever you write, I want you to send them to these seven churches, these seven Asian churches. I want you to send them to them specifically. Commit to writing these things. 
And those specific names of those seven churches are mentioned, and those are the churches that over the next number of weeks we'll be dealing with each one of those churches. So here our Lord, the very captain, the author of our salvation, gives the apostle notice of this by a glorious appearance unlike anything anyone's ever seen. So we might ask ourselves the question tonight, that why is this appearance, why is this vision of Christ, which John had all those centuries ago, why is it important to us? Well, one thing we need to understand about what John is describing is John is describing a symbolic representation. Symbolic in the way that he is symbolizing primarily the death and the resurrection and the suffering in which Jesus endured, what he went through. John recognized this one as the Son of Man. So even though his appearance was much different than his earthly body, our Lord's, John immediately knew that this was the Son of God, that this was the Son of Man. He didn't have to say, who are you? He turned, he heard the voice, he saw who it was. And even though the description is much different than anything we ever see in Scripture, he knew who it was. John recognized him. But yet, Hebrews 13, 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. But this would seem to suggest that Jesus has somehow changed because his countenance, his appearance is different. He's the same Jesus. He hasn't changed. Now, he's in what we're going to see in, of course, what's appearing before John as a different appearance, but he's still Jesus. At this point, we're not given to us a description of thorns on his brow. We're not told that uh, there are nail prints in his hands. We're not told anything about that in this appearance. We're not told that there's some kind of groaning or there's agony in his voice. No, we're just told that John recognizes the Savior's voice. He clearly knows who this is. Now, what we've got to keep in mind when we start this, we have to understand that what John is describing is a symbolic representation of what Christ is right now. What Christ is in the symbolism in the appearance of what's being described, it's describing Jesus in many of his attributes. Oftentimes we make this obsession with thinking about what Jesus looked like on this earth. I have watched religious people over many years strain trying to figure out what did Jesus look like. People spend decades trying to sketch what Jesus looked like, trying to dig up artifacts, trying to find a way to describe what did he look like earthly, and then they've tried to give, sadly, an awful representation of a caricature of what they think Jesus looked like, and most times it's completely wrong. There's an obsession about what Jesus looked like. Now, of course, what he looked like and where he was, all we need to know about that is what the Bible tells us. But the obsession that people have with what he looked like when he was on earth is often not met with thinking about what he is now. Does it really matter what Jesus is now? Do we we care what he looks like? And part of what John is describing here is describing what Jesus looks like, but I want you to think much deeper than what our natural fleshly eyes would see. Too often we get so wrapped up in also thinking about what Christ is going to look like in the future that we don't think about what does he look like now. Where is he now? Now those of you who are Bible scholars can answer that question. Where is he now? He's at the right hand of the Father. Where he has been since he ascended. What is he doing now? Biblically speaking, we're told he is ever living to make intercession for his people. But one thing we're never told about is what he looks like. It's never described to us what he looks like seated there at the right hand of the Father. But yet John gives us this insight of what he looked like in this glorious appearance. Now no doubt when we think about what the future will be like and when we see our Lord in the scriptures that say we shall see him as he is, we shall be like him, 
We look forward to that, but think about now what John's vision of Christ is teaching us about who Christ is. The emphasis is not so much on the appearance as what is being declared and what is promised to God's people as a result of this glorious appearance. In other words, each one of these appearances that symbolically represent what Jesus looks like are not meant for us to obsess with how does Jesus have a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth? It's more, what does the two-edged sword out of his mouth mean? I think, I hope we understand what I mean by that. The obsession is often about what the eyes of the flesh want to see instead of what does it symbolically represent. One thing you're going to learn throughout our study of Revelation is a lot of people for many, many years have just said, well, I take everything I read literally. Now, there's a difference in taking the Bible literally than understanding that the Bible also has allegorical representations to illustrate a truth. The entirety of Pilgrim's Progress, the book by John Bunyan, for example, is an allegory. It's mentioned almost in the very beginning. It's allegorical. The things that he's talking about are things to symbolically represent the theme. Throughout the book of Revelation, if you've been taught all of your life that everything you read is to be taken literally as if that's going to be the case, there's going to be some really strange things that are going to pop up that you're going to say, Does he mean that's what it literally looks like, or is there some symbolism in this particular vision? Well, what's happening in this glorious vision, this appearance of the Lord, is more of a symbolic representation of the character and the attributes of Christ. But it is of an immediate interest to us because Christ is now, is now still concerned over his churches and is still ruling from the right hand of the Father. So part of the vision that John actually sees here is John sees the Lord Jesus, and we'll see this in the first couple of verses, in the midst of his churches. Now, does that mean that John saw those seven Asian churches in this vision? Or does it say he's seen Jesus in the midst of them? What does he mean by that? Well, that's the demonstration and the symbolism that's being used to describe seven golden candlesticks, and then we'll see later seven stars. This is is symbolism. This is representations of what's happening here. So the vision should be of interest to you and I because we are part of the body of Christ. So we should be interested in what John saw. We should take interest deeply in what John saw. But what does, the, what does it really tell us? Well, it's not really the main goal of Revelation, and I, I want us to listen carefully, is not speculation. Okay, the book of, for example, the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, the primary purpose is not speculation. It's not even curiosity. The the goal of the revelation is not for us to speculate on every jot and tittle of what we see and speculate on what this is or is not. But rather, it again is to remember what the very first words of the book of Revelation are. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, first and foremost, the book of Revelation is not even more, is not primarily about prophecy or end times. It's about the revealing of Jesus Christ. The the idea that we're to speculate is what has led to many of these arguments that happen between, I think, sometimes well-intentioned believers who argue about end times. And argue about whether you're pre, pre-millennial, pre-trib, post-millennial, amillennial, and you get into all those arguments. And there may be a place for those, but that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to reveal Christ. Now, in the revelation of Christ, I do believe, and we're going to get there, that there is a right way to interpret end times. Okay, But you don't interpret it properly if you miss the revelation of Christ. So I'm not making this a nebulous statement to say that I don't believe there's a right way. I do believe the Bible reveals clearly how the end times are going to be and what to look for, what those things are. But if we miss the revelation of Christ, we'll, even get, we'll get that wrong. So the intent here 
is to understand even at the very beginning what this vision is telling us about Christ. We're not to speculate, but rather it should lead us to a spirit of worship. It should lead us to reverence, humility, adoration. So I believe, biblically speaking, verses 12 through 16 especially, they're symbolic. They're not... We're not to look at those and say that what we really are supposed to see is try to figure out how, how were his eyes like a flame of fire and were his feet like fine brass and his, were they like burned in a furnace and in his right hand. This is symbolism here. But what, it, what does it represent? It represents the glory, the majesty of who Christ is. It represents who he is. The candlesticks are not meant to be literal candlesticks. The candlesticks have a meaning as to what they are. The two-edged sword coming out of his mouth is not to be taken as a literal sword, but it is to be interpreted in the way of what that sword means. Again, remember, I began by asking us the question and posing the challenge, we can be obsessed with what Jesus looked like in human form, but is that really what we're supposed to be speculating about? And I would say no. Honestly, what Jesus really, the greatest description of Jesus that we see in Scripture is what actually happens in Isaiah 52, right before Isaiah 53, that per, per predicted that his visage or his countenance would be marred, that he would not even look like a man. So even depictions on the cross do not match what Jesus actually looked like on the cross. So it's not about getting a human vision of these things. Now we're told scripturally, that the only way we can understand Scripture and the only way that we can understand what the Bible says is that we have to be given a God-given eye of spiritual discernment. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 16, when he said, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Listen, when you try to debate and argue with a person who is still in that natural state and has not been converted, that person is incapable of understanding the deep truths of Scripture. The Scriptures are not understood by our intellect. They're understood by spiritual discernment. He says, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In other words, there is none that instruct the Lord. There is none that instruct Him. Uh, we are not His counselor. So what we have in our text tonight is an account. It's a testimony. It is part of what this appearance of Jesus told John to write. So John wrote what he saw. He turns, he sees the voice. He sees whose voice it was. He sees where it's coming from. And then he sees this appearance, this vision before him. So what did he see? Well, verse 12, we see the first aspect of this. As I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now again, these are not... This is not to be taken as a physical description of Christ, but a, 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 a summary, if you will, of what's often referred to as Old Testament symbols. Most everything that's mentioned here has reference to the Old Testament. Even down to the priestly robes, the garment down to the foot. That's a reference we'll talk about in just a moment. That's a reference to the priestly robes that the Old Testament priest would wear. He talks about the breastplate, the golden girdle. He talked, these are Old Testament pictures. So this is a representation, these seven golden candlesticks. These candlesticks are a representation of the church. And this is being explained. The churches are compared to candlesticks. And why are they compared to candlesticks? Because the churches are those which hold forth the very, or hold forth the light of the gospel. It's very important to understand that the churches and even believers are not the candles. You and I do not produce the light of the gospel. The gospel, it, the, Jesus Christ is the light. Churches are described as the candlesticks. We're not the light. We don't produce that light that originates with us. We reflect His light. 
But these candlesticks are a reference to the church itself. And it is representative of that. They are described as golden candlesticks. Gold, of course, in Scripture has deep meaning, specifically to its purity. And it's not only with reference to those who are the ministers in those churches, but everyone that is a part of these churches, part of these candlesticks, ought to be the very representation or carrying the light of the gospel. That's why when Jesus was making mention, even in his own teaching, in Matthew 5, verse 16, he talks about this light and putting forth this light. Uh, Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So candlesticks are meant to hold up the light. That's what the intent of this vision. And he says, I see seven golden candlesticks. Why seven? Because he wrote to seven Asian churches. So in the context, primarily, he's talking about this is a vision or a representation of the seven churches in which I'm telling you to send these letters. And he says, I saw seven golden candlesticks. So he sees a representation of the church under the emblem of seven golden candlesticks. In verse 13, he sees, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, the seven candlesticks being a representative of the church, in the midst, he sees one like unto the Son of Man. So in the midst of the churches, in the midst of this representation, John sees a representation of Jesus Christ in the middle of the golden candlesticks. That's what he sees. Jesus in the midst of his churches. Christ, from the time he promised Peter that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, Jesus promised that he would always be in the midst of his churches. He will always be in the midst. Filling them with the light. Filling them with the light of the gospel. And as the candlesticks, they were to hold forth that light. And as they held forth that light, they were to shine, just like we read in Matthew 5. And so we see John describing what is nothing really new. But what Jesus had said he would already do. He would be in the midst of his churches. But then thirdly, notice that then he begins to give a description. He says, clothed with a garment. Now a garment throughout Scripture, especially when we refer to the garments that refer to Christ, are often a reference to the righteousness of Christ. This garment was a righteous garment. But notice the garment was a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. This nearly describes to a T the high priest. Okay, The high priest in the midst of the golden candlesticks in the temple. This is all Old Testament here. This is what you're seeing happening here. This form in which Christ is appearing to John gives us these seven very, or, or gives us several particular characteristics of it. He's clothed with a garment down to the foot. This is a princely and a priestly robe. The robe that would go to the foot denotes righteousness and honor. Now, is Jesus Christ? Righteous? Yes. Is all honor due to Him? Absolutely. He is the great high priest. Jesus, in the midst of His seven churches, as He promised, described as the high priest, perfect righteousness, worthy of the honor. Says he was girt about with a golden girdle. This is a reference back to the breastplate of the high priest. And the high priest would also have the names of his people engraven on that breastplate. What was the high priest doing in the temple and the tabernacle? 
He was putting himself in the place of being what a redeemer would do, although he could never redeem fully. But Jesus Christ, with this breastplate upon him, is ready to do and has done the work of a redeemer. That's what this is describing. So you have Jesus in the midst. You have the seven golden candlesticks. You have him clothed down to the foot in the priestly, perfect, righteous garment ready and is doing the work of a redeemer. Now, part of this we actually see back in the book of Daniel. Now, again, we're not going to go real deep with this tonight because we're going to get to all this as we work through this. But Daniel chapter 10, if you want to turn back there, verses 5 through 6, and then down at verse 11. I want you just to notice the description here that's being given. It says his... Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polish brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of the multitude." Down at verse 11, it said, And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood uh, trembling. Uh, most believe that this certain man that's mentioned in verse 5 is a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. And so there's this, this description between what Daniel was talking about seeing in Daniel chapter 10 and also this vision that John is seeing in Revelation chapter 1. So we see this comparison here between what is in the old and what's in the new. Revelation 12, or Revelation 1, back to our text, says not only was he uh, down to the foot and girt about with the paps of the golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now this description of his head and his hairs being white like wool, uh, Jesus, of course, is described as the Ancient of Days, and this is a picture of uh, that there is no sign of decay, but this Ancient of Days, this head and hairs white like wool or snow, is a description of a crown of glory. So this white hair that is on his head is about his glory. It's about a crown of glory. Again, Daniel makes mention of a similar description here. Again, back to Daniel uh, chapter 7. He actually uses the terminology here of the ancient of days and describes, again, this crown of glory, if you will. Daniel 7, 9, he said, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. Again, we see this Ancient of Days. This is a divine title. Ancient of Days is a title that refers to God's eternality. This is... This is a picture that he is without end. And the reason it's in the context that, that Daniel writes about in Daniel 7, 9, he says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. It, it's, a, it's a reference to every earthly throne, every earthly kingdom is going to be cast down. But the God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, his throne will last forever. So this white hair, this, this white that is as white as snow that John is describing is, is depicting this eternality of the throne of God. It is also described his eyes were as the flame of fire, very similar to what Daniel said in Daniel 7. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as a burning fire. Oftentimes, especially throughout the Old Testament, fire is often seen accompanying God's presence, which is told and given to us to symbolize his majesty and his power, his ability to consume. So he casts down, he consumes. His eyes were as a flame of fire, John describes. Of course, fire also brings with it a level of fear and terror. 
Again, Revelation 1, we go on to verse 15. And his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Again, describing his feet like fine burning brass. Again, pictures of subduing the enemy. Talking about treading down all that are opposed to him under his feet. Interestingly enough, when we get to Revelation 2 verse 18, this particular phrase is used again. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So even in the letter to Thyatira, it's told about these feet of fine brass and a flame of fire. So we see, again, the descriptions here. We go on. His voice as the sound of many waters. Uh, waters that are mighty. Waters that are rushing. Water that are raging. Water that can be heard. This is a reference more to his voice being heard and the level of man being able to hear it. It has references back to even the call of the gospel. That the gospel that is going out into this world is a gospel that is, is like mighty waters. It, it is heard. It is a water, it is a voice that contains perfect wisdom and perfect knowledge. Again, remember, John is describing symbolically what Christ represents. And then he says he had in his right hand seven stars. And so we saw seven candlesticks. We'll see, and then we see seven churches, and we see seven stars. These seven stars are representative of the ministers of the gospel, God's messengers to these churches. And it says he had in his right hand seven stars, these messengers, these ministers. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Those ministers, those messengers, even the very angels, are under the direction of God. They're under the direction of Christ. These are not rogue messengers. These are messengers who are sent out under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And out of His mouth is a two-edged sword. What does a two-edged sword do? His Word both wounds, but it also heals. It strikes at sin. Two-edged swords have more than one purpose. Again, he uses this terminology when he's writing to the churches in Revelation 2, verse 16. With one of the warnings, he says, Repent or else I will come into thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, this is a sign of judgment that would come. All the way to Revelation 19, verse 15. This sword is mentioned yet again. Revelation 19, 15. And out of his mouth go with a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So you can see how these descriptions are describing biblically what Christ is determined either through prophecy or by his own declaration to be. That's what John saw. John is seeing with his eyes these characteristics. Verse 16 tells us, and, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Countenance has the idea of his appearance. John, I believe, is speaking here that he was speaking of his glory. He was talking about that his, his glory was such. He's trying to give a description of what God's glory would be like. And he describes it as the sun shines. One thing I've always thought about that even as bright as the sun which we see, that's still not a complete accurate description of what the glory of God actually looks like. But he's describing it as the sun. He's describing it as the sun shineth. 
For you and I, for example, if you were to go outside and you were to, while the sun is shining, and you were to look up and just stare at that sun, you would not be able to look at it for very long. He's talking about that the glory of God, that what he was seeing was so bright and was so glorious that he could not even look at it with his mortal eyes. Folks, again, everything that we talk about and everything we hear, we often think in such human terms that we're not thinking about what we actually are, are supposed to see spiritually. We're obsessed with what our physical eyes can see. That's why there's this sick obsession with trying to character or draw a character of what Jesus looked like in the human flesh. But yet when we get to passages like this, what should our response be? Speculation? Or should it be what John does? What's John's response? What's the impression that this appearance of Christ made, makes upon him? Verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Folks, this is not an emotional response. This is not Pentecostal slain in the Spirit. This, this is John is overpowered, literally overpowered, with the glory of God. This isn't something that he sat and considered and think, I wonder if I should respond. He's overpowered by God's glory. I ask ourselves the question, and I ask myself the question all the time. I mean, do we even think about the greatness of God's glory? Now remember, John was familiar with Jesus. He walked with Him. He ate meals with Him. He saw Him do many glorious things, but this time when he saw Him, he fell at His feet as dead. He was familiar with Him, but His response to Him this time is completely different. Imagine that impression that that must have made upon John. But I don't want you to notice the goodness of the Lord. He's always good, but notice how he responds to John. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, unto me. Jesus speaking to John directly. Fear not. I am the first and the last. Where have we heard that before? Previous week. I am Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. Christ lays His hand upon him. He raises him up. He doesn't say, I want you to get up. No, He actually lifts him up. And He says this, I am He that liveth. There's the Christ that lives. And was dead. Jesus Himself is declaring that upon that cross... This puts to rest all the false heretics that say Jesus didn't really die. Jesus Himself is declaring that I was dead. But now I live. But it's interesting that He tells Him not to fear. He says, fear not. Why? Why should He not fear? Because I am the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. We learned last week how... Jesus being the Alpha and the Omega ought to bring us a great source, a great sense of comfort. He's the beginning and the end. The glory of God overcomes him. He falls at his feet and Jesus says, Fear not, I am he. They are words of comfort. Remember, where is John? John is banished on the Isle of Patmos. Why was he banished there as we read last week? For the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's for John's words. That's why he was there. He says, I'm he that liveth. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and of death. The comfort in that is amazing. Not only do I give life, but I also hold the keys to death. It is in my hands. These are words of comfort. These are words of encouragement to John. He's taking away the fears. They're not only comfortable words, but they're also teaching words. They're words of instructions. This is confirming to John that the one who's standing before you, this vision, this appearance that's before you, is none other than me, Jesus Christ Himself. 
he equates him or acquaints him with his nature. First and the last, only God can claim to be Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Only God can declare that. You and I cannot take the title of Alpha and Omega, and we cannot take first and last, and we cannot take the beginning and the end. All we can take is literally in our humanity, our flesh. This is a divine declaration. But not only does he declare his divine nature, he declares his former sufferings. He says, I was dead. I am the very same Christ which you and the other disciples saw. John, in particular, especially saw him. What was Jesus doing upon that cross? He was dying for the sins of his people. So he acquaints him with his divine nature. He acquaints him with his suffering and his death. But he also acquaints him and reminds him of the resurrection. He says, I am alive forevermore. What does he mean by that? I have conquered death. I have conquered the grave. I've conquered sin. The grave was opened. I came forth from that grave. And I am the purveyor or the partaker, the owner of an endless, eternal life. These are not frivolous words that John is being told. But when he also makes the declaration of it, I have the keys of hell and of death. Yes, of course, he holds the keys to those, but this is also a reference to his office and his authority. This is Christ declaring to John, I have sovereign dominion. I have power over the visible world and the invisible world. I'm the one that opens doors and shuts doors that no man can open and no man can shut, which we'll read about in Revelation later. I'm the ones that open up the gates of death when I please, and I am the one who opens up the gates of eternal life. I am sovereign over all happiness. I am sovereign over all misery. I am the judge of all. You might put it this way. One who is a judge of all means there is no appeal court to go to. His judgment is final. You know, you lose a, you lose a court case in our current judicial system, many times there's an appeal route you can take. There is none other to appeal to than Jesus Christ. And His judgment is final. Jesus is, determ- is de- declaring to John yet again His sovereign authority. But then notice this, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. In other words, Jesus tells John, write my will. Write my pleasure. Write the things that you are seeing. Write the things which are. Write the things which will be. This is the will of God. And then we'll deal more with this next week because we'll, we'll run this right into our introduction to the first church. But the mystery of the seven stars, which thou hast solaced in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, here he kind of gives, gives an exposition of what he meant. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Just like we read earlier, seven candlesticks, here's what they are, seven stars, here's what they are, seven, these are the churches. And that's what leads John into now to write about and write directly those things which Jesus said to these seven churches. These seven churches to whom Christ now is going to send specific messages to. Now, we're going to have to keep in mind, remember, there are going to be similarities between what we see in the church today, and we're going to look at these things, and we're going to say, okay, here's what he meant. He meant the church over here. There are going to be parallels. There are going to be applications. There are going to be things that have always been true. But you also have to keep in mind that these seven churches, there are, in cases, seven specific messages written to those seven churches for a specific reason. In other words, folks, we, we, we've got to be careful of not over-spiritualizing everything we see and making everything apply directly to us as if it was being written to them. 
Now again, there are applications, there are promises, there are things that are going to apply directly and meant directly for us, but there are also very specific things that are going to be in these seven churches, and we'll see that over the next uh, number of weeks. So John and his vision simply described what he saw. He didn't add what he thought about it. He didn't add the interpretation of it other than what Jesus gave him to write. He's not speculating. He's simply writing what he sees, what he hears. No, nothing more, nothing less. It's important for us to understand that when we even proclaim a Christ in this world, and folks, I, I can't stress this enough, we have got to be careful that we're actually proclaiming the Christ of the Bible and not the Christ of our own imagination or not the Christ of what somebody told us one day and we never studied it for ourselves, we just believed it. Listen, there is who Christ really is and there is who people want Christ to be. There, are, there is who Christ really is and there are, there are those who have created a Christ that they want They've made him cater to what they want Jesus to be. This vision, this appearance, if we were to literally begin to understand and consider what John was saying about this, this ought to lead us to a spirit of worship. This ought to lead us to reverence. To say that Jesus is declaring himself to be what the Bible said he is, not what man says he is. One of the one of and, and, and again you, you can disagree with this and that's fine, but one of the great heresies in the church today starts with an improper vision of who Christ is. That's where it's going wrong. And that's why you see the people that say we only preach a Christ of love. We only preach a Christ who is not a Christ of judgment. We don't believe in the Christ that, that pours out wrath. We don't, we don't believe in a Christ that holds the keys to, to death and to hell and to sin. Man, folks, that's where it goes off the rails. And I say it even goes off the rails if we refuse to acknowledge that Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, that they are sovereign over salvation. And if, if, and if, we, if we mess that up, then that's an improper view of who Christ is. That's not the Christ that's been revealed. And yet, how does it happen? As I began this message by telling you, because most of it happens because of speculation. And we begin to try to see too much with what our earthly eyes want to see, what we want to make it, and then what it actually is. If you go back and you look, and I did this, look at most, if not mo most of all that I uh, all went back and commentators who took this passage and looked at it, almost every one of them to a T said this is symbolic. But you know what I grew up being taught? That this was all literal. And that that's what he looked like and that's what it was. And every time you see it, this is what he looks like. Every one of those, and I know we're, get, we're getting way back, we're getting into the Puritans, we're getting into the Reformers. You go and read, they'll all say that this was symbolic. But that, that mentality has moved away from a lot of churches. And again, I think it will lead you to an improper conclusion about the secondary issues such as the end times. And people are arguing over the wrong thing. You're arguing over the wrong thing because if you're missing Christ, the end, listen, in the very end, if I truly believe that it is all Christ, it's, it's, it's all or nothing with Christ, I know one thing is for certain, that one day at the appointed hour, Jesus Christ is coming for his bride. And I'm not going to care one iota if I missed the end times. I'm not going to be concerned if I went through the tribulation or I didn't go through the tribulation. If, I, if it was an amillennial or premillennial or postmillennial, I'm looking for Christ. Now, it might matter now because it may disrupt my physical well-being, but I'm going to tell you when you see the glory of the Lord, it's not going to matter. Now, again, we're going to come to a conclusion. I have, I have a conclusive conclusion thought on what I believe the Bible says, how it's all going to go. But that's not what my biggest concern is. 
My biggest concern is, is do I truly understand who Christ has revealed himself to be? And I hope that's what we'll, what we'll see throughout this study. Let's pray together. Father, we, Lord, I am brought to a place where even reading this text again, Lord, I've reviewed it and read it this week over and over and over again. And yet it doesn't even seem to my feeble mind to be able to grasp the truth that's in front of us. That this glory that John was seeing and the the words, the glorious words he was hearing. Father, I do pray that we who are yours, we are those who are your children. That Father, we would desire to see and to know, to thirst after, to hunger after that which is true. To not be carried away with all the speculation of the day and We know it is running rampant and it is all over around us. Churches spending more time speculating, giving opinions, giving philosophies. The Lord, may we just read your word and let the Spirit give us discernment because it is only the Spirit that can teach us and can instruct us. Lord, no doubt every man who has ever stood before a congregation of people and has attempted to preach this book and every other book in the Bible in his feebleness, in his humanness, has said things, misspoke, was misunderstood. But Lord, we take comfort in knowing that the Spirit will never bring confusion. The Spirit will only bring that which is true. But Father, I pray as we have each and every week since we began this study, I pray that you will just continue to open our eyes to this truth and the truth that's before us. And Father, may we daily, minute by minute, give all the glory and honor and praise to our Lord. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.